Esther. You heard the text read a moment ago about a man who was born blind. Well, I was at the eye doctor um, a week ago Friday at the, um, the doctor's office where they do surgeries uh, on eyes. I, I, I actually am going to have to have cataract surgery this week. And I know what you're thinking. Who knew that young people could have, uh, could have cataracts? You know, for, uh, for years, the, um, the area high school football coaches have suggested I have something done about my eyes. And so, who knew? They were right. They were right all along. I probably should have uh, taken up a collection among the football coaches. They probably would have paid for my, for my eye surgery. But I have a cataract on the back of my eye, and the doctor did tell me that, that this is for, you know, younger, younger people have it back there. My eyes, my left eye has been getting blurrier and blurrier uh, over several weeks. And, um, and so he, I went to the, my regular eye doctor. He did the, the exam, said you've got a cataract on the back of your eye, and referred me to the surgeon. And um, so a week ago Friday, I was sitting in the... Um, in the waiting room. By the way, there were a lot of old people in the waiting room. It was the strangest thing. And um, I, had a, I had a thought. I thought, boy, I hope, I hope it's a cataract. Because I thought, what if, what if maybe uh, the, the, the original eye doctor misdiagnosed my problem? What if it's, what if it's not just a cataract? So quite frankly, when uh, the surgeon came in and said it was a cataract, I was, um, I was relieved. It's hard to imagine uh, what life would be like were I to lose my sight. In a moment, we're going to look at that story of the man born blind and what happened to him. But first, let me tell you a story. Uh, Kate Bowler is a professor at Duke Divinity School. Kate, some years ago, was diagnosed with cancer, and when the nurse called to give her the, the report over the phone, uh, the nurse said it was everywhere. So Kate was in the hospital. She had had her first surgery, and uh, while she was still in the hospital recuperating, a well-meaning neighbor came and brought a casserole. Her husband, Dr. Bowler's husband, met the neighbor on the front porch, and the lady was about to hand him the casserole. She said, now, you know, everything happens for a reason. Well, I'd like to know what it is, he said. Pardon? The reason my wife is dying. I'd like to know the reason my wife is dying. The well-intending neighbor stammered and stuttered and, and hemmed and hawed and handed him the casserole, and walked away. <clears throat> and later, uh, Dr. Bowler wrote about that story. She, she survived that and, and wrote an entire book uh, titled rather sarcastically, Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved. Now, I wouldn't express things exactly the way Dr. Bowler does in the book, but I, I do appreciate that she was willing to tackle that long-held and widely-held assumption that everything happens for a reason, because I'm not sure it does, at least not for reasons that we could ever 
figure or know from a human viewpoint. The truth is we live in a fallen world, an imperfect world. A couple of weeks ago I talked about Weiss Lake. I, had, I think it was last week I was talking about that, that dead-end bridge that once stretched over a small creek. But then about 1960 they decided to dam up the Coosa River and waters that never had been there came flooding, racing into the valley. And everything changed. Eden was a perfect place. And then when Adam and Eve sinned, the evil and death and disease came rushing into the human story, a place it never had been. And since then, bad things just happen, sometimes without explanation. Bad things happen, and sometimes bad things happen to good people. In the grand scheme of things in heaven, maybe everything does happen for a reason. But on earth, those reasons are not often knowable. But in the Bible's day, in the days of the Bible, everybody believed everything happened for a reason, and if something bad happened, the reason was somebody had done something bad. If something happened to you, then people would have said, Ah, we know you did something bad. Hence the story that you heard read a moment ago, that Jesus and his disciples walk up on a man who was born blind. Who sinned, Jesus' friends asked. Was it this man or was it his parents? Because we know something bad has happened. Somebody has messed up. So was it him or was it his parents? Jesus surprised them when he said, Neither. Neither he sinned nor his parents sinned, but he is blind so that the works of God may be revealed in him, and we're going to come back to that. Neither he sinned nor his parents sinned. It's common, and I guess it's understandable, that we would ask what happened or why when something bad happens. I've heard people ask about the pandemic, about the the COVID-19, the coronavirus pandemic. So who's God punishing, people have asked. In fact, I've heard some real specific suggestions by people who believe God was sending a signal to this group they didn't like or to that group they didn't like. I guess it's natural to ask why, but the truth is there's not always an answer to that why. Sometimes bad things just happen and Sometimes bad things happen to good people. Now, I do want to make sure, clear something that <clears throat> sinful choices do have consequences. Bad choices do have ramifications. Sinful choices hurt ourselves and hurt people around us. Numbers 32, 23 says, be sure your sin will find you out. So, sinful choices do have consequences. That, about that I want to be clear. But this morning's story reminds us that everything bad is not the result of, of somebody's sin. You with me? Every sin has consequences. But everything that is bad is not attributable to somebody having messed up. So if something bad has happened in your life and you're, you're tempted 
and maybe some people help you to think that maybe it's something that you've done. Well, maybe not. Maybe, maybe bad things just happen to good people. So who sinned, they asked him. Was it, his, was it this man or was it his parents? Neither, Jesus said. But that this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in, in him. Now, on the surface, that sounds a little bit like, well, God struck him blind in his mother's womb so that years later Jesus could come along and do something really cool and look really good. But that's not God's M.O. He doesn't act like that. He, he doesn't yank us around just so that he can do something cool in our lives. However, often God does something really good that would have been impossible had there not been something really bad. And I've, I've really struggled, and I struggled at 8.15 to say this clearly. So I want you, as I ask them, I want you to work hard, help me to, so that I can communicate this well. Sometimes God does something really good that he would not have been able to do had there not been something really bad first. Sometimes God does something really good that would have been impossible had there not first been something really bad. There's an ancient Norwegian legend about a fisherman and his two sons who went out at night to fish. They were out in the water in their boat when a sudden storm blew up. The winds were high, the water was rough, the, the night sky became as dark as ink. And they became disoriented. They needed badly to get back to the shore, but they were disoriented in the waves and the winds and, and, and everything so dark. They couldn't tell which way to go. Meanwhile, that storm that had them in such peril had blown into the humble shack of the farmer back on shore. His wife was there in the kitchen. The wind blowing through the cracks spread the fire. The fire got higher and higher until it was out of control. And then the kitchen was on fire. And then, and then the whole house was on fire. His wife made it out and ran down to the shore hoping to meet her husband and sons. And in fact, they did make it back to the shore. And she told him, she said, our, our house burned. Everything we have has burned. Everything we have has gone up in flames. He seemed strangely unmoved. Did you hear me? She said, everything we have has burned. He said, let me tell you what happened. We were being tossed around by the storm and we needed badly to get back to the shore, but we didn't know which direction. We were disoriented. And then we spotted an orange glow, which we knew had to be coming from the shore. So we headed for that orange glow. Now I know, he said, now I know that was our house burning. Our house burning made it possible for us to get to the shore. Our house burning probably saved our lives. Now I know that's just a legend, but I think about that story sometimes. When I think about the fact that sometimes God does something really good that would have been impossible had there not first been something really bad. And we see that only looking backward. Ed and Sharon, would you all come up here, please? Many of you know, uh, of course, Ed and Sharon Culpepper. Uh, Ed uh, was on staff here. In fact, Billy this week was talking about how, uh, how important, how, how, how influenced he was by Ed's ministry here when I think when Billy when Billy came and um, Ed knows a little bit about this story 
So I've, um, he's agreed for me to ask him a couple of questions in front of you all. Ed, this man was in the story was born blind. Uh, when, I, when Carrie and I met you and Sharon in seminary, you could see as well as I could. So what is your story? About 30 years ago, I began having problems reading and uh, with my eyesight and had some floaters in my field of vision. So I went to the ophthalmologist, was diagnosed with diabetic retinopathy. They did a couple of laser treatments uh, of my retina and said, oh, this is wonderful. We've caught this in uh, just the right time. You may need laser treatments a couple more times in your lifetime, but everything looks good. And then my retinas began to detach. Uh, three times in each eye, surgery was done to reattach the retinas, but scar tissue would crinkle up and pop the retinas loose again. And after the sixth surgery and the surgery of the month club, the doctor finally said, I'm sorry, you're not going to see anymore. And this was how many years ago? 30 years. 30 years ago. And you were a pastor at the time. Right. Pastor at Mountain View Baptist. And um, we've laughed about uh, all the neighbors worried about you walking down the street to church, that preacher, crazy preacher. They say that about all of us, but this one happened to be nearly blind. And what? Then you had, you said there was a day when um, you were still pastor there when some guys showed up at the church. Tell us about that. Huntsville Times had done an article about local pastor uh, goes blind and continues to serve. So the news had gotten out in the community, and I'd heard from a number of people saying, we're praying for you, people that I did not know from anyone else. One day, a car pulled up in the parking lot, and four somewhat portly gentleman stepped out, uh, came to the secretary and asked if they could have a few moments to see me. So she ushered them in. They introduced themselves as four local ministers. One of them had a vial of olive oil that he had brought from a recent trip to Bethlehem. And they said they had come to anoint my eyes with this oil from the Holy Land and pray for me. And if they did that, I would see again. And they sort of intimated that the reason I was persisting in blindness was due to a lack of my faith. I assured them that I regularly prayed the prayer that I learned from the dad who asked Jesus to heal his son, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And I told them, thank you, but I didn't sense any leadership from God to have them anoint my eyes, but uh, they were welcome to pray for me. They sort of thought that it was a package deal that I get the anointing, they pray, and I'm healed. Uh, So they were somewhat less inclined to share in prayer, and we parted company. And again, it's interesting that they thought if you just had enough faith, then, um, yeah. 
So you have a, an interesting take on this line, this rather profound but even confusing line where it says that he was, he was born blind so that God's works could be revealed in him. What is your take on that? That became something of a, uh, an ongoing prayer of mine. Uh, Jesus answered his disciples that this man was born blind so that the works of God might be revealed through him. And that became my prayer that the works of God might be revealed through the things that I was able to do. I knew that God had allowed me uh, some training in ministry and had given me some gifts and had made me a part of a community of faith that helped with things that I could not do but that sometimes people would see me doing things and think, how in the world is this blind guy water skiing or snow skiing or reciting paragraphs of scripture from the pulpit or take note of something that I was seeing or that I was speaking or doing uh, and wonder how, why uh, am I answer always was, God is good, and God has given me uh, those things that I'm able to do, and a community of faith like First Baptist that uh, gave me a place of service in ministry for 11 years. But my prayer always is that through whatever I was able to do, God's works would be revealed through me. And it's similar to the prayer for any of us, that whatever our deficits or challenges, that it's an opportunity through us, whatever we're facing, for God's works to be revealed. I've seen those videos. Some of you have too. Of Ed water skiing and snow skiing. It's amazing. I, I want to ask you one final question, and it's about a prayer that uh, your wife Sharon prayed for you. It was not for one thing, but it was for another. Tell us about that. No. In all of the prayers, and prayers were said on my behalf from people all over the world for healing of my sight, Sharon shared after several years that she never had a peace for praying that my sight be restored, but her prayer was that the healing in my life would be that God would heal my spirit. Uh, and that is the prayer that has been wonderfully uh, fulfilled and granted by God's grace, uh, that God would heal my spirit and everything else could take care of itself. Mm. Well, before you go, I do have to act, uh, clear up something. I, I heard that some years ago there was, a, there was some sort of football game between the, the, was it the staff and the youth, and you volunteered to be the referee. Is that, uh, yes. is that true? I, I donned the zebra shirt uh, and was glad to have the opportunity of signaling the students scoring their touchdown against the Deacons. <laughs> Ed, thank you. Help me thank Ed for his courage. Oh. 
Thank you, Sharon and Ed. Mm. So there was um, a second part of the story. It's the trip down to the Pool of Siloam. Now, we're not sure exactly where Jesus and the blind man met. Almost certainly it was near the temple. It is probable that the blind man was begging for alms uh, near the temple. That's probably where they met. Now, some of us, about 72 of us, a, a couple of years ago were in Jerusalem, and others of you have been. You might remember that the Pool of Siloam is at the very bottom of the mountainside upon which Jerusalem was built. The Temple Mount is way uphill from the Pool of Siloam. Again, Jerusalem is built on a hillside. If you can imagine where they met and it being a long, tricky walk down the side of the mountain through the streets of Jerusalem to the Pool of Siloam. Now, I imagine that the, the blind man must have wondered. So, so Jesus said, so he, he spat on the ground, made mud with the saliva, and put them on the, on the, uh, put the, this compress, I guess you could say, on, on the man's eyes and said, now go to the pool of Siloam and wash and you'll be healed. And he almost certainly had to have a helper get through the streets. Don't you think that the blind man must have wondered why he had to go so far. Jesus, why can't you, don't you think he wondered, Jesus, why couldn't you just do it here? Why do I have to descend to the pool of Siloam? Why do I have to go so far downhill? Why do I have to get somebody to help me to navigate the tricky streets of Jerusalem? Why do I have to go from the temple way down to the pool? Well, For a lot of people, healing requires a trip to the pool of Siloam. God doesn't always do His work in convenient places. A good friend of ours retold the story to Carrie and me a little over a week ago about his recovery, uh, the beginning of his recovery from addiction. He's a minister, and he told the the powerful story of his brokenness, of all that he'd lost, and then the decision to come clean. Not to make excuses anymore, not to blame people anymore, not to cover up anymore. He talked about that first meeting with other people who are alcoholics. He talked about the cost of speaking up and saying, this is who I am, this is what I do, and I'm an alcoholic. But his is the story of grace and redemption. It's, it's a beautiful, beautiful story that he tells openly. But the first step in, in, of the 12 steps in Alcoholics Anonymous is this. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol and that our lives had become unmanageable. 
We admitted we were powerless over alcohol and that our lives had become unmanageable. Don't you imagine my friend the minister said, God, if you could just do it up here and not make me go down to the pool of Siloam, if you could just do it up here where everything is nice and everybody's polite, if you could just do it up here without revealing my problem to everybody, if you could just do it up here where people don't know what I've been trying to hide. So my friend had to go down to his pool of Siloam. And that's true not only about addiction, but, but, but all our issues. And we all have issues. We had a vibrant recovery community and uh, ministry in Richmond. And, and one day, for the... For the sake of solidarity, everybody in church wore a sticker that read, I've got issues. We could give them out here, could we not? Because we all do. For somebody listening to me, your issue is a marriage that you're, you're pretending is a lot better than it is. But you're not going to find healing until you're, you're willing to, to go to the pool of Siloam. You're going to need some help. And people might find out. But you're not going to find healing up here. You're going, to have to, you're going to have to go down here. And for some of you, it's a mental illness. that you, you don't want to say anything to anybody because you're afraid of what people will think. And you're afraid to ask for help. But you're going to need, you're going to, need to go to the pool of Siloam. And somebody is somebody's feeling spiritually lost. And you're thinking, I, don't, I can't let people know. My goodness, I'm at church all the time. I can't let them know that I'm feeling spiritually lost. You, you're not going to find wholeness up here. You're going to have to humble yourself and, and come clean and, and trust people around you. Dennis Parker is uh, one of my favorite folks. Dennis uh, is a member of our church. He's been uh, sober for five years. He got his, a uh, few weeks ago, got his five-year chip. And he tells... Some of you have heard him tell the story of living behind Costco over there on the, the parkway. And he tells about the day in, in jail when his life changed forever. How humbling it was. How transparent he had to be. And he sings a song, and I, I wanted him to sing it today. He's out of town. There's a whole lot of stubborn in this room, he sings. He told me, there were plenty of people I know now who would have gladly reached out to help me, but there was too much Dennis in there. I, I've struggled putting this into words. So I'm, I'm praying that the Spirit of God will, will translate this to your hearts. But somebody is hearing me who's going to have to go to the pool of Siloam to find your answers, to find your healing, to find your, tran your transformation. Pride is a terrible thing. And pride has kept a lot of people from their pools of Siloam. I pray that whoever it is, will be courageous, vulnerable, and find your healing at your pool of Siloam. Esther's going to play I Surrender All, and 
we're going to reflect on that, and then, then we'll have our closing prayer. And I'm going to wait down front for those who might want to talk about what it means to be a member of our church or to talk about what it means to follow Jesus or maybe to be baptized as those two young adult ladies were this morning. As others are leaving, I'm going to wait for you.